0: I, I talk a lot about this idea of being multidimensional, you know, and, and one of my observations over my life is that the happiest people have many facets to their life. And, you know, they escape this trap that in particular a lot of men fall in just because of the way society is set up where, you know, maybe your work just becomes your whole identity. And um, my observation is those, some of those people who on the surface appear really successful, at least by society's definition, are actually quite miserable. But I also observe that people that have multiple facets to their life, multiple dimensions, tend to be happy. And I think there's a lot of, a lot of reasons for that. And you know, uh, I take pride in the fact that many of my closest friends actually don't even know what I do for a living. I've met them through climbing or through other things. And so that's what really stuck with me is this, this idea. And you know, there's other aspects to life too, but when you have multiple dimensions to life, it kind of balances you out. And if one thing's going well, or if one thing's going poorly, you always have something else to to turn to. And and it really comes down to like, what's your identity? Who are you? How are you going to allocate your time?
1: Hello everyone. My name is Chris Powers, and I wanna thank you for joining me on the Fort Podcast today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. Hey guys, it's Chris. Thank you so much for joining me today on The Fort. I have Kevin Dahlstrom with me today, who is the chief marketing officer at Central Pacific Bank. He's also a world-class rock climber, and he's become a really good friend of mine over the last year uh, after meeting through Twitter. We have shared a lot of conversations on what he's focused on, which is basically disrupting the banking industry. He's been um, very influential and successful in uh, the internet world, the fintech world, and he has some remarkable ideas for how to change banking. He tells a really cool story about his experience pitching to SoftBank and getting to go to the founder Massa son's house, which I thought was hilarious, um, and a whole lot more. So thank you for continuing to join me on this journey, and I hope you enjoy today's episode. Kevin, Thank you so much for joining me today on the show.
0: Hey Chris, good to be here man. We've we've been trying to find a way to hang out, so I guess this is this is a way to do that. This is this uh, is our start. It's a good start anyway, right?
1: I love it man. Well, at least you've been in Fort Worth, uh, lived in Fort Worth before. Um so we have a lot in
0: common to begin with. Yeah, you know there's all these this talk, you know, on Twitter about which city is best and Fort Worth never gets mentioned, but I told you this before, I think it's kind of an under the radar gem. I mean, it's just a great place to raise a family. The summers are a little brutal, but uh, it's a fantastic place to to live and raise a family.
1: Yeah, well, I actually want to talk about that. I think I'm really, one of the things that I was initially drawn to you was the courage you had to just kind of say, you know, I don't, I'm going to pick up the family and we're going to go try something new. I think there's a lot of people that want to do that um, and don't, so why don't you just share a little bit about kind of your story uh, growing up and kind of what's led you to today. And then maybe we can also talk about you moving to Boulder.
0: Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, just to touch on that real fast, I moved uh, from Dallas to Boulder, Colorado three years ago. And, you know, I'm a rock climber. So um, it was a, you know, this is kind of like an adult playground here in in Boulder. It's, It's actually pretty amazing. I was telling somebody this morning that I pinch myself every day. I'm, I'm literally looking out my window right now at, you know, rocks, which is, you know, a big deal to me. Um, but it's a long way from where I grew up. I mean, I, I grew up in uh, a town called College Station, which you're probably familiar with. It's where Texas A&M is. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a college town. So there's an well, educated population and there's retail and whatnot, but it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. And so a bit of a shielded childhood, which is both good and bad. Um, went to college just down the road in Austin, which is, you know, if you know much about that rivalry, that was kind of a, a big deal in my family. Oh yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, I had a, a, I was a pretty naive kid and, you know, growing up in central Texas and staying in Texas most of my life, honestly, I didn't really have an idea of, you know, there was a, there's a great big world out there that I just wasn't aware of until I really began my career. And, you know, honestly, you know, when I started rock climbing, I was introduced to rock climbing through a, through a friend. That was also something that exposed me to the, the fact that, you know, there's a great big world out there that needs to be to be explored. And so, you know, I, I met my wife in college, been married 23 years, have uh, like yourself, have two daughters, minor 16 and 14. In fact, my 16 year old just made her first solo trip in a car yesterday <laughs> Uh, it's a big, big milestone makes you start feeling, feeling old. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, we, we moved to Boulder three years ago and that was a big, big life change and probably far over long overdue. Um, but you know, I have this kind of provocative point of view that your choice of place is arguably the most important decision that you make in life, even more important than your choice of partner. And it sounds like crazy to say that, but if you think about it, you know, one person, your partner, can only have so much influence over your overall happiness, but the environment you live in, you literally are immersed in it 24-7. And it's funny. I think you know, objects at rest tend to stay at rest. So I think a lot of people don't put a ton of thought into wh- where should I live? What place would make me happiest? Um, but we should. We should put it as much thought into that as we do into uh, choosing our partner. So. You know, I like to say a lot of the things, Yeah, I'm 50 now, so I tend to reflect on uh, 50 hits you different. You know, 40 <laughs> wasn't a big deal, but 50 hits you different. And I, I tend to reflect on life quite a bit these days. And, you know, I've, I've learned a lot of things the hard way. And that's one of them is that you really have to be deliberate about really everything in life, but, but choice of location is a big one.
1: Did you, was your wife like just totally on board when you said you wanted to go to Boulder or like, how did you kind of execute this plan and keep everybody in harmony doing it
0: yeah well uh the short answer is no everybody <laughs> wasn't on board <laughs> uh because you know look it's it's a big change and you know when you have kids they have friends you're you're immersed in the community and you know how much of a community-oriented place dallas and fort worth are I mean, we had a lot of good friends there but i have this a real passion for the outdoors and and for rock climbing and my family does too um So I definitely, it did definitely come to a point where I had to kind of force the issue. And I think now my wife would for sure say, oh yeah, we we should have done this earlier. But, you know, ultimately I think that's probably how it works in most cases is one person has to kind of force the issue and and then it happens because it is a big deal to, to kind of, you know, it's almost like a reset on life, right?
1: Yeah. What was your pitch that the the environment was going to be great? The weather was good. Like, I mean, how, how'd you pull this off? This is, yeah. I know it seems like it's for somebody listening, maybe not a lot, but when I think about trying to move my family right now, somewhere across the country, I, it seems like that would be a tough, uh,
0: tough thing to do. So I I guess a couple of things. One is if you've ever been to Boulder, it kind of sells itself. I mean, honestly, it, it really is a, a great place, especially if you're into the outdoors at all, it's like 320 days of sunshine a year. You know, you're in the mountains, but you're not so high up that you get the brutal winters. So you know, you can wear a t-shirt at least one day a week for most of the year. Um, but but the other side of it was, I was just getting increasingly angry <laughs> living <laughs> in Texas during the summer <laughs> because being an outdoor guy, I found that I was having to travel a lot to go do the things I wanted to do. I'm, you know, there were years, I mean, for many years, I made 15 or 20 trips on the weekends to Nevada, Colorado, California to go do you know pursue my passion with friends and it was actually disconnecting me from the family. And so I'll say one of the really nice things about moving here is I can kind of do my thing, my family can do their thing, but we all come together every day. Uh I mean we're we're kind of I guess old fashioned in that way, we still have dinner together every night. And that's a big deal. I mean I talk a lot about you know, being around the family and being able to have those, what I call the in-between moments where you have unplanned things that just happen, you know, five minute interactions, those are gold. And, you know, you know that having, having children. Oh yeah.
1: So in doing, just getting to know you and then doing research, like rock climbing is a big part of your life. Can you just expand on that a little more? You, do you do this professionally or like when you think about rock climbing, what does it mean to you?
0: Yeah, I mean, rock climbing is one of those interesting pursuits, and I guess you could put things like surfing in the same category. Where it's kind of a sport, but actually, the most attractive part about it is it's really a lifestyle. And so there are lots and lots of people van lifers who have dedicated their lives to rock climbing, and they travel around in their van and and rock climb. And you know, it's it's there's a whole culture to it, and the community actually is the best aspect. Of it, and for me, it was really an escape in the early days. I mean, I I I liked the the act of rock climbing itself from day one. I was just hooked on it. Buddy of mine took me to a gym actually in Dallas, and you know, since that day over twenty years ago, I think there's only been two times I've gone more than a week without climbing. Oh my gosh! It's it's a bit of an obsession. You could you could call it an obsession. (laughs) but, but really, it, it changed my life. I, I talk a lot about this idea of being multidimensional, you know, and, and one of my observations over my life is that the happiest people have many facets to their life. And, you know, they escape this trap that in particular, a lot of men fall in just because of the way society is set up where, you know, maybe your work just becomes your whole identity. And um, my observation is those some of those people who on the surface appear really successful, at least by. Society's definition are actually quite miserable, but I also observe that people that have multiple facets to their life, multiple dimensions, tend to be happy. And I think there's a lot of a lot of reasons for that. And uh, I take pride in the fact that many of my closest friends actually don't even know what I do for a living. Uh, I've met them through climbing or through other things, and so that's what really stuck with me is this, this idea. And you know, there's other aspects to life too, but when you have multiple dimensions to life it kind of balances you out. And if one thing's going well, or if one thing's going poorly, you always have something else to, to turn to. And and it really comes down to like, what's your identity? Who are you? How are you going to allocate your time? That's so interesting that like a lot
1: of people don't know what you do. And, and maybe I'm just too outward facing about what I do, but I don't feel like I could ever escape that. And, um, how do you think about Like having great friends that like, kind of don't know what you do. Do you just say like, I'm a rock climber or you just avoid
0: the conversation altogether? Or how do do you execute on that? They know vaguely what I do. Like I do business stuff. And, but, but like, to be honest, they're just not that interested in it. And I love that. Like it's a complete escape for me. And, you know, but you know, I of course have friends through work or colleagues through work that I'm close with. And we, we talk about that a lot. And, you know, don't get me wrong. Like I, if you know me at all, you know, I'm super passionate about my work and I want to change the world. And that's a big part of my life. But, you know, I think boundaries are important. And if you want to have balance, um, I think it's really, it, really important to, 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 to have boundaries. And there's a great quote. Um, it's from an American poet, Annie Dillard. And she says, um, how you spend your days is how you spend your life and on the surface, it sounds like, you know, no shit, right? But, <laughs> but if you think about it, it's actually, it's actually quite <laughs> profound because a day is just a microcosm of a life. And I think a lot of people live in this mode of like, someday, you know, someday I'm going to change my life. Someday I'm going to be this. Someday I'm going to do that. But, you know, really you're living life every day. And so why not have every day be a microcosm of what you want your life to be? And so that's how I always approach it. I never bought into this myth that you couldn't be wildly successful in business, but also have other interests and and pursuits. And it just so turns out that from a personal standpoint, when I talk about my friends, I tend to just connect and identify more with my friends that come from things like climbing yeah. than from business.
1: Yeah, so cool, man. Um, I won't get into my day, but I needed to hear this today.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> we all do occasionally. Well, you know, it's funny because I feel like in some ways, an imposter on your on your podcast because I'm not a real estate guy. But I was actually thinking about that. To be honest, it's like a lot of the the circle of friends we have on Twitter. You know, I think they do have to think about that. It's like, are you going to be the the real estate guy, like the wildly successful real? Estate, is that who you are? Is there more to that? You know, I, uh, I was actually talking to our our friend Nick the other day about that. Even though it's a quality problem to have, like having a lot of success in one area can actually become quite a challenge. Because as I said. I've met a lot of billionaires, a lot of wildly successful business people. And I would say almost without exception, they're quite miserable and you don't want to be there.
1: I could not agree more. And it's funny, even doing this podcast, I feel like it started as a side project. But when people ask me, like, what's one of the things I just love doing, real estate's starting to become like the second or third thing. Like I have so much joy talking to you today on this podcast Um, and we'll see where it leads. But I
0: never really expected that. Um, I've always been the real estate guy. Well, I think I never viewed you that way because I think you and I talked first on the phone like maybe a couple three, four months ago, and I think we connected pretty quickly because our value we sensed that our values were pretty aligned. So I mean you've had wild, you've had incredible success obviously in real estate. But I never really thought of you as like the real estate guy. I think you know you clearly have other other interests and passions.
1: Honestly, I take that as a compliment. Um, I appreciate that Uh, because I think to some people I can be. But and and your whole thought on multi dimension and just the world we're living in today. We do have opportunities now with the resources that we have in technology and software to build a multi-dimensional life, and I think it's kind of cool uh, being a somewhat of a generalist and not just a, a specialist in some
0: in some ways. Yeah, or maybe a specialist with boundaries, right? Yeah. So, like, I like to think I have. I mean, maybe it's just because I've been at it so long, but I have some pretty specific expertise in at the intersection of sort of marketing and, and financial services. Um, and I, I love the work I do there, but, but it's just that it's like, it's part of my life. Yep. One, one more question on
1: rock climbing. Cause I'm fascinated by this, but there's been one documentary when I'm on American airlines that I've watched twice and it's, it's Alex that is he, is he climbing? Is he free, he's free scaling or free climbing. Is it Capitan? Free soloing. Free soloing.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that, that documentary, I don't know if you know this, but it won the Oscar and, you know, Alex Honnold is, is probably the first rock climber to break through to the mainstream. I mean, rock climbing in the U.S. has always been a bit of a niche uh, sport. It's, it's one of the fastest growing sports, though, among youth. So it, it's becoming bigger and bigger, especially with the advent of gyms popping up all over the place. Um, there's a gym in Fort Worth now, by the way. What, what he did that is just, I mean, it's, it's mind blowing. And honestly, as mind blowing as it seems to you as a non climber to climbers, it's even more mind-blowing. Um, he free solo, which means climbing, you know, with your hands and feet only, but, but not even using ropes or protection. Um, he did a extremely hard route on El Capitan, which is, you know, and he even said this, it's like, you know, sometimes in life you have to roll the dice a bit and, you know, there's a non-zero percent chance that he would have, he was going to die doing that. But, you know this that's that's been his life he's the master of that particular sub discipline within climbing and it made for a great it made for a great
1: documentary it was incredible sure. i literally would sweat the entire freaking flight and would get to where i was going and be just drenched thinking about being <laughs> doing what he was doing so that's yeah. kind of as close to rock climbing as i've ever gotten in my life besides knowing you so um th- that's what comes to mind All right. Well, let's talk about a little bit about your career and what you've done, kind of leading up to your current role. And then I want to talk about uh, a really popular article that you wrote. um, And we'll get into the fintech discussion.
0: Yeah. I mean, so um, I guess I'll quickly cover my career um, because I know there's lots, lots I want to talk to you about. But I I came out of you know being 50 years old now. I came out of college in the mid '90s, which was the original dot-com boom. It's actually quite similar to what we see going on today, except today is a, a thousand X what was happening back then. And so I came out of college at a really cool time and pretty much immediately got into the startup world. I worked in both, uh, you know, some startups in Texas, but also Silicon Valley. And um, I think I've I've been a either a, one of the first employees or a founder in a total of six companies now. And um, I, I intentionally actually worked my way into the intersection of internet and financial services, because for pretty simplistic reasons, actually, is that one, I, I was always a math guy. I was that, that math geek that you knew in high school and loved math and you know, studied engineering in college. And, um, I always thought finance was a great way to apply math. Um, you know, I saw these fancy wall street guys making lots of money. It's like, Ooh, I want to do that. Um, little did I know that's kind of a miserable path in itself but but you know so I was always interested in in financial services just from a mathematics standpoint but also like money I was like what a great product money is everybody knows what it is everybody likes it everybody wants it it's non-perishable it's digital so what better internet product could there be than money and so I ended up kind of working my way into um you are know, doing a lot of work in in internet financial services and you know, like most people who have, who've have been around the internet for a while, I've kind of hit for the cycle. I've had some spectacular strikeouts, you know, where millions of dollars were lost. Uh, I've, I've had, you know, some singles and doubles and I had one I'd consider a home run, you know, a company that, um, you know, it was a Sequoia backed company that, you know, I was, uh, one of the early employees and we took it from zero to $700 million in revenue, ultimately an IPO. Um, so I had an incredible run there, and so, you know, lots of lessons learned through, through that journey. And um, what, what I learned was I'm not necessarily a, a zero to one guy. Like I've been on my knees, like running Ethernet cables for some of the companies I've started. And, you know, some people are really good at that, just like getting the things started. What I really enjoy is scale and leverage. And so I actually found like as we grew from zero to north of 500 million in revenue, this company Elevate, I... I found that I was more comfortable the larger we got and some of the people became less comfortable as we scaled I felt like I was gaining more and more and more leverage mm-hmm. and so a- as a result of that you know when I left that company you know I I joke and it's not I- I'm not really serious about it but like I joke that I've been trying to retire since then unsuccessfully but um recently like the past I guess six or seven years I've been going into larger public financial services companies and doing sort of like technology or transformations or turnarounds or whatever. And that's incredibly fun work because you have these resources and you have this leverage to do cool shit. And, uh, so that's what I've been up to, you know, and now just to kind of bring us up to today, uh, I'm in this really, really it's, it's such a great opportunity. I'm almost ashamed to talk about it. <laughs> I, I, well, uh, let's see. Um, it would have been, uh, November of 2019, I get a text out of the blue from a friend of mine from that startup I talked about. He said, "Hey, I'm on the board of this bank in Hawaii. They want to do some cool stuff. Are you interested?" I was like, "You had me at Hawaii." <laughs> and, and so, long story short, I went over, met with the CEO. The, the, it's a it's a mid sized bank in Hawaii called Central Pacific Bank. They they had hired a new CEO who. Used to run IBM Japan, so kind of a technology guy, super cool Japanese American, Paul. And we hit it off and, you know, rest of the executive team. And what they wanted to do, which lines up, you know, kind of segueing actually into that article I wrote, um, I'd written that before I joined CPB. But what this bank wants to do is basically what I outlined, which is, you know, kind of transform banking. And it turns out, even though Hawaii, yeah, it sounds like great to work out of Hawaii, right? Obviously, but, but it's actually kind of strategically very interesting because being sort of distanced from the mainland, we have no mainland business to cannibalize. I mean, it's a $6 billion asset bank, 100% based in Hawaii. Wow. And so we can do crazy things in the mainland without cannibalizing our business. And we're a fully chartered bank, just like any other bank. And it also is a bank that has this incredible origin story of being founded by uh, World War II vets who couldn't get served by, by the other banks on, on the islands and just a pristine track record. When, when I joined the bank, you know, banks are notorious for for providing shitty customer service. When I joined this bank, I would like my Uber driver was like, oh my gosh, you're interviewing with CPB. Um, I love those guys. And I heard that over and over. And then I, I asked, like, do you guys track net promoter score? Uh, and, and if you're not familiar with net promoter score, it's, it's the one, it's the question you get asked a lot on a lot of websites that says, on a scale of one to 10, would you refer this business to your friends? And there's been a lot of research done around net promoter that it's, it's like, it correlates incredibly well with long-term company growth. That one question, they call it the golden question or something. Anyway, um, you know, so Apple would have like an 80 net promoter, like the stellar top of the they, They told me that the net promoter score for this bank, Central Pacific Bank, it was like a ninety, and I was like, "No, nah, I don't. I just don't buy it. the The, the data is wrong, but it, it is actually quite remarkable." So, you take this recipe of a bank that's got enough scale to play, but small enough to be nimble. And uh, I mean, there's five people on our executive team. We we make decisions very quickly, but also has this legacy of actually being anti bank. Like, like we are everything that banks aren't, and so it's it's an incredible vehicle to do. All the cool things that I've I've talked about honestly for years. I've been like on this rant for years about you know banking's kind of like healthcare, like pretty much broken in every conceivable way. You as a business owner, like you're shaking your head. You know this, yeah. We've talked (laughs) a lot, and as a consumer, so so that's what I'm up to now. And it's it's real. I've got a team here in Boulder, so I've got a basically our mobile app team is here in Boulder, and we're building something that I think is going to be going to surprise a lot of people is go, something fundamentally different is really the goal and and that doesn't exist in banking
1: yeah even though we've uh you know known each other probably the last year as I was researching for this I got on the way I was the first time I actually went to um uh Central Pacific Bank's website it's probably the coolest bank website I've ever seen which after every every way you just describe the bank is not surprising um Okay, well, let's dive into this paper that you wrote called um, "Your Margin Is My Opportunity," and let's kind of lay out the ground for all the things wrong with banking, and you know what, where your mind's been the last six or seven years.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think the fundamental problem with banking is it's a government-sanctioned oligarchy, right? So you have, you know, if you, if you think about the banking market, and a lot of people don't know this there are like i think there's about 10,000 chartered banks but four of them control 50% of the market banks have superpowers that are granted by the government if you have a bank charter you can do things that other businesses can't do like hold deposits make loans and so on and you know that just breeds complacency and it's a it's a block to innovation and so you know literally the way your grandfather or your great-grandfather banked is the same way that you bank today. The products are largely the same. You've got an app in your pocket that allows you to do some things a little bit faster, but the fundamental way it works hasn't changed at all. And so, you know, you can, as uh, there's a a saying among fighter pilots that, you know, it's a target-rich environment. Banking is a target-rich environment (laughs) in the sense that you know, anywhere you look, there's opportunity to to innovate. And it's such a freaking massive industry that, it, you know, I just see opportunity everywhere. And so, um, but banks have to be part of the revolution because they they do have superpowers granted by the government. You know, and that that's why I chose to kind of be on the inside. Like FinTech's obviously very hot right now, but behind most FinTechs is a bank sponsor. And the FinTech can only do what the bank sponsor approves. And so my thought was like, why not be the bank and, and try to do interesting things? And so, you know, a lot of the problems, so, so there's one is like that, that complacency that has, you know, kind of not, there has been zero incentives to, um, to innovate. Banks have been built around profits, not customer value. And so if you look at the way they operate, like every product at a bank, whether it's like a, a HELOC, a personal loan, a credit card, a deposit account, those are all incredibly, like those are literally different groups with different P&Ls at most banks. And, and sometimes they compete with each other. So there's no notion of like bundling or discounts or removing friction. And so money gets trapped in all these weird ways. Like one of the examples I, I pointed out in my essay was like, there's, you know, there's something like $20 trillion um, locked up in home equity in the U.S. It's, it's by far the largest source of wealth. And in fact, it's the only source of wealth in America for, for most Americans. But it's incredibly hard to tap that wealth. I did a, a commission to study of 20,000 homeowners. And what, what we looked at was how much home equity do they have? How much credit card and other debt do they have? And what we found was that um, if if those if the average homeowner would simply use their home equity to pay off their existing credit card debt, they could save like five hundred dollars a month in interest, which is super meaningful for for most Americans. But it's there's so much friction in the system between all these different products, and HELOC, which is the typical way you might tap home equity, it's it's such a like an undermarketed, misunderstood product. And so, like that's just one example of like how money gets trapped and where the friction is. And why shouldn't that stuff all work just seamlessly? And why shouldn't I get bundling discounts and you know, why shouldn't things be built around me? Uh, why shouldn't the process be built around me and not the bank? And why is that? Because
1: there's just been no innovation, or I'd have to imagine there was that this many smart people. It's been thought about a lot. Is it is it government regulation keeping this from happening, or it's purely just it just hadn't been innovated on yet?
0: Yes, I mean, you know, all those things and more. Is you, you know, um, there, there hasn't been innovation. There hasn't been incentive to build things around the customer. And, and one of the great things about the fintech explosion is, at least at the user experience level, um, banks are coming under serious attack. <laughs> you know, there, there are literally hundreds of neobanks out there, like Chime's one example. They've got, like, uh, already over 10 million uh, account holders. Um, and they're definitely, you know, approaching it with a Silicon Valley style, like, you know, almost like Amazon-like, like, create great customer value. So So it's happening. The problem, though, is, as I point out in the article, and a lot of people don't know this, is even like a chime, 100% of their accounts are actually housed by a bank. There's a bank behind the scenes. In fact, if you look at the the fine print on their website, it'll tell you which bank is the bank sponsor. And so most of the innovation is limited to to what I call the the, the data and the UX stack or the, the UI layer of the stack. So at the very top of the stack, you know, they can take all this great data and they can do cool things with it. They can have a really slick looking app. They can be more customer centric, provide better service, but it doesn't attack some of the underlying fundamental issues with the financial instruments themselves. Like how do you make them all work together? Like to to use the example I talked about earlier in, in home equity, like why shouldn't your debit card or a credit card just like in an intelligent way, just tap home equity as needed it's not unusual for a consumer a homeowner an average person to have $100,000 in home equity but they've got $25,000 in credit card debt at an average of an 18.9% apr or whatever but you know why shouldn't i couldn't home equity just be tapped as needed at 3% i mean this is a, this is game changing and there's still lots of money to be made by doing this and actually it can be done even within the bounds of existing financial instruments but you have to mix and match them in interesting ways, which means you have to break those silos that exist at banks. And that's a really hard thing to do. By the way, that's one, we're doing with the new product I'm working on for, um, for Central Pacific Bank. I can't give away too much, obviously, but but that's one of the things we're doing. We're actually combining a couple products in a really interesting way. It's shocking. Like I, I was telling my, the executive team yesterday when I was giving them an update, I just can't believe this hasn't been done before. Like it's such an obvious move and I'm really nervous that someone's actually going to do it before us, but, but it's just one of those things like, duh, that's, of course, that's how it should work.
1: And so like, I, and just, I'm just, the first thing that came to mind was, uh, I'm plugged into the bank. The bank knows, uh, you know, what I, the home I own, they own, they probably have the mortgage I have, or at least have record of the mortgage I have. Maybe it's connected to like Zillow, so there's a constant like value being assigned to my house, and I'm out living my life, spending money, and and one day it might say like, "Hey, you can't spend anymore; you've spent all your equity." Or I'm constantly paying down principal on my loan anyway, so I'm almost refilling my credit card, um, almost like a
0: debit card, like something like that. Yes, you nailed it. Like, why shouldn't move? You almost can picture a dashboard of like a bar chart of like, here's the cash in your account, here's your home equity. And, and why shouldn't money just like move around seamlessly? Let me tell you the, the this crazy, crazy, couple of crazy examples. So I have been, I opened my Wells Fargo account in 1994. Again, I'm, I'm dating myself yet again, but <laughs> but I have been with Wells Fargo against my will for, for the most part for, for like since 1994, however, however many years that is. They've seen every paycheck I've ever had in my life, which by the way, you know, has been continuous for 25 plus years. Millions of dollars of money has flowed through that uh, flowed through that account. But if I went to a Wells Fargo branch today and wanted to get a, a mortgage, they'd hand me an empty, a blank form and say, "Have at it." I would be treated exactly the same as some some random you know twenty three year old coming in off the street. And I'm not saying like because I've got money I deserve to be treated better or anything. But but they know everything about me. They know more about me than I do, and so um why shouldn't that just be an automatic process and so yes everything and guess what chris all of this stuff's gonna happen but it just it's happening so slowly and the reason is because all roads lead back to the bank the fintech can't make those kind of fundamental changes because they're not chartered financial institutions now you're starting to see companies like square square recently got granted a utah charter and so they're the one that's actually one of the companies to watch for a whole bunch i mean cash app is they just crush it consistently Those guys, like they're the one to watch. And this square square and you're like, I'm super bullish on on square. Like I I, you know, full disclosure, I own Square stock. But but it's uh they're the one to watch actually in financial services.
1: So break down just for a second, just fintech versus bank. Like, what's the difference? How are you thinking about each one? Again,
0: you might have already said it, but
1: let's let's do it again.
0: Right. So um when people say fintech, it's short for financial technology company. And basically, what a fintech is, it's a tech company that builds banking products, essentially, but it's not a bank. And they, what they do is they, they, they operate through what's called a bank sponsorship agreement. So a fintech will go do um, a partnership with a bank like mine, uh, Central Pacific Bank, and we'll, uh, we'll agree to basically private label our, our banking services under your brand. And so you can build on, we have, we provide an API layer, you can build products on top of, you can, and, and do pretty much whatever you want, but, but you have to operate within this, within our box, right? You can only do the things that we provide today. Um, so you can't touch, you can't go under the hood and start doing, innovating in these, with these financial instruments in, in the ways that you and I were just, we just talking about. And now the, the positive, in some ways, that's a really elegant relationship because as a FinTech, um, you want to be able to move fast and break things. And, you know, most fintechs are startups and by definition or, or by design, they're wildly unprofitable and you could never be a bank and be wildly unprofitable. I mean, regu- a regulated institution, you know, for obvious reasons, you don't want your bank hemorrhaging money, right? <laughs> you know, you want to be, so in some ways it's an elegant partnership where, you know, the bank can basically handle all the regulatory stuff for the most part and be a sound institution. And then the fintech builds all the cool shit on top of it. Uh, the problem is that it's a very limiting model because fintechs are limited by what the bank enables for them. And so it's the it, things are moving slowly. and a lot of these banks that are in the business of being a bank sponsor for fintechs, they, they their businesses they work with twenty or thirty or fifty or hundred fintechs. and so so just to manage their business, they want to they provide a very standardized set of services. So all these neo banks, chime and others, end up looking exactly the same except they've got a you know one app is purple and one's green or something.
1: So like a bank that could sense? become yeah a bank could become a fintech company but a fintech company
0: couldn't really become a bank is that a weird statement? Um it's not necessarily true like i said like square just it's it's hard to get a banking charter yeah and you know square just got one it takes years it's a lot of work so a lot of a lot of fintechs will in uh, a ba- But a bank can build whatever technology it, it wants. Yeah, that,
1: um, that's kind of what I meant. Like they have more of the moat to to just hire innovative people and start building products as opposed to the other way around where a fintech like really can't even
0: be a fintech without a bank already attached to it. Yeah, except, you know, the one huge gotcha for banks is they can't get out of their own way. You know, a, a ba- a banks are terrible innovation. They're just not built for innovation they don't have you know typically they're not full of renegades right it's the opposite like banks have historically rewarded and and bred I- individuals who are really good at managing risk like belt and suspenders type people and that's a good thing not a bad thing but but what what you haven't seen yet is a bank that's really found that balance between having those folks who can can manage the bank in a sound way but and then also having folks who can challenge the status quo and That's what we're trying to do. I mean, we've got, it's interesting, you know, even I mentioned like the benefits of being based out of Hawaii. You know, we've got a team here in Boulder who's even a separate location that is focused, you know, more on the forward looking innovation stuff. And it's almost like operating like a fintech within a bank.
1: Yep. You kind of just answered it, just saying that banks aren't innovative by nature. But you made the comment of like being at Wells Fargo, there's been millions of dollars passed through this account. And like nobody in this hundred thousand person company thought like maybe it would be a good idea to save this and like make it easier on our customers to have more products. Like, how would Wells Fargo defend that? What would they say?
0: Well, I mean, one is Wells Fargo has and, and all banks really have had an incredible business for so long. I mean, I, I referenced this statement my dad said when I was a kid um in, in my article of like go to any downtown area in any city and and look at the nicest buildings. Typically, they're banks. Um, Guess who pays for those buildings? You do. I mean, banks have had, despite being incredibly bloated on the cost side, crank out like 25% plus net margins. So they've had an incredible business and that's, you know, they haven't had a lot of incentive for for a whole variety of reasons to to innovate. But and so as a result, like I'll give you another example. I mentioned i I was going to give you two examples. So one that drives me nuts, and and I know this is one that I could fix if I was willing to put in the effort. Uh, I shouldn't have to though. I, I'm an LP in a lot of real estate deals, so uh, I, I made a decision long ago that I've uh, I'm not competent to be on your side of the table, uh, where where the real juice is. But I'm happy to be an LP and come along for the ride. And so I always wire money. Like I always have to do, like these pretty decent size wires. And every time I want, I have to do a wire, I have to go into a branch, a Wells Fargo branch, and I have to wait in a chair for a you know, 24-year-old banker to, to, to get to me. And then I have to go through this just painful process because you, know, you start from scratch every, every time. And it, it just drives me insane. Um, again, with, with all my history, why can't I do that online? It's like I have to take like an hour plus out of my day every time I want to do a wire you know, and I've been a customer for so long. I've, you know, there's long history. I've done lots of these types of wires and and yeah, they do technically have a solution where like I get a VeriSign key fob or whatever, and like have to have this hardware sitting on my desk or whatever. They have some solution for it, but you know, it's just, it's kind of insane. And the reality is like, they don't care. I mean, at the end of the day, they've had a great, business for, you know, a hundred years plus years or whatever, and print essentially have a license to print money. Now they should care and they're starting to care because all this stuff's coming under attack. You know, you've got, like I mentioned, this, this, this fintech or this neobank called Chime has raised over a billion dollars. Like, I don't even know how you would, you would put a billion dollars to work in a startup trying to reinvent banking, but you could do some cool things for sure. So it's happening.
1: Yeah, I mean, if it's not Wells Fargo's not worried right now because it's not like you can walk out of there and go down to another bank that's doing it any differently. I mean, it, it is just the status quo right now.
0: That's right. Like, and, and so you, you might say, Kevin, why, since you're complaining about Wells Fargo so much, why don't you sack up and just move to <laughs> move to another bank? The reality is, it's exactly what you said. Like, it's it'd be the same thing. I mean, of course, now I have a, an account at Central Pacific Bank, and, and it's great. Um, you know, uh, I've been to work there. But yeah, that's the thing is, it's like, it's a sea of sameness.
1: Yep. Well, today's the eve of, or is actually the the day of Coinbase going public. So Ugh. let's talk about crypto for a little bit. This is, it can't be left out of a conversation in banking and fintech. You know, one of the promises of crypto is you don't need to go to the bank branch and do all this. You can kind of just do it on your own. What's your take on all this crypto stuff and how does that play into kind of how you're thinking about all this?
0: Yeah. And crypto and blockchain in general. Right. I mean, it's um, I'm a big fan of decentralization. Uh, I think, you know, I love everything it represents. Uh, Funny story. So in 2017, uh, a buddy of mine said, hey, have you heard about this uh, Bitcoin stuff? And I'm like, no, not at all. Uh, But I have a lot of respect for this guy. So I actually opened a Coinbase account and uh, I think I bought my first tranche of Bitcoin at six hundred dollars, so that's 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 my 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 single best investment I've ever made, and um, it was one hundred percent speculative. Like I literally forgot about that account until like twenty nineteen when you know Bitcoin was getting a lot of press again. I was like, holy cow, that's done really well. And to be honest, like I'm still a buyer at sixty three thousand dollars, by the way. You know, and again, purely speculative. And you know, it's one of those things where like. I would never recommend anybody invest more than like 1% of their net worth in, in crypto. But in my case, I would have to sell to get it down to 1% because it's grown so much. Yeah. So, awesome. you know, it's, it's so funny though, because like I've put so much effort into like other investments, you know, cause I, I do a lot of startup investing and advising and stuff. And, you know, the single best investment by far is one that I just like totally did on a whim.
1: But How is it going to play in? Like right now, I, I still, as I sit here today and I own Bitcoin too, I actually own a little Ripple and some Ethereum, but I can't give you like a great answer other than <laughs> my answer to everybody is I fish where the fish are. And if, when I look at the world and I see the smartest people in the world working on this, billions of dollars being poured into it, it's hard not to go, there's got to be something here or else so many people and so many dollars are wrong. And so what is the promise all this as you think about it? Is it it still yet to be discovered? Do you have an opinion on that yet?
0: Yeah, I think I'm probably fall more in your camp where I don't have the answer, but I see a lot of really smart people I respect who are super passionate about it and believe it's the future. Now, I will say like with Ethereum... Like the idea of smart contracts and being able to automate, it, it actually does intersect with every, and I'm, this is probably why you asked the question, it, it intersects with a lot of the stuff we were talking about earlier in terms of removing the friction from things. You know, it, I think it's it happens over a long time horizon, but it's one of those things where uh, I'm big on like, um, it was Andy Grove who ran Intel for a long time. He talked a lot about inflection points and inflection points are interesting interesting mathematical phenomena where a curve you know is maybe headed in the right direction but then all of a sudden it just takes a dramatic turn something happened and a lot of times you know you can't uh, predict these inflection points what happens is you know it's not a big deal it's not a big deal it's not a big deal and then all of a sudden it's too late like you missed out on it, it's a huge deal and i think you know that inflection point even though there's been this crazy run up around bitcoin and a lot of talk about crypto and DeFi and blockchain, that inflection point hasn't really happened yet in terms of the killer app. You know what I mean? Like, what's the killer app for, for blockchain? I, I don't know. Maybe it is just just Bitcoin as, a, as an alternative currency or store of value. I, I kind of fall in your camp. I don't know. And I think that's, even like smart people like Balaji and Liza, like, I don't think they necessarily know, but they know that directionally this is the future. It's, it's kind of like the internet, right? Like, Back in the ni- mid-90s when I came out of college, um, I started. I actually started my career working for this big consulting firm. And I was like, I went to the partner and I said, hey, I think this internet thing is going to be like legit. Like it's clearly going to be the future. And he was pretty much said like, that's nice. Now get back to work. <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> and so, but it, but it was clear that there was something huge there, even though at the time, like the websites were like Yahoo was like literally like a manual yellow pages listing. But 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 it was clear that something was going to happen.
1: Yeah, I mean, even on how we first met, which was on Twitter, even though we used to live down the street from each other, I even think about it as like, Twitter's been around for a long time and I feel like it's just now hitting its stride, if that makes sense. Like, I think people are just arriving that like, holy shit, Twitter's really valuable and still only like 7% of America or something is actually using it and I get more utility out of it than just about anything on the internet. And it's been around for 12 years. Doesn't it feel like this
0: secret that you know about that nobody else knows? It's like this little, our little group, like I kind of float around a few of these different communities because I'm on the fringes of like the real estate and the FinTwit and whatnot. And I saw those same statistics about usage and I was like, holy cow. On one hand, I'm going to put my whole net worth into Twitter. On the other hand, it's so freaking mismanaged, the company. I Don't get me started on this, yeah. Chris. Uh, it's, so fr- it's so frustrating because we see, we see that it's, it's so unique as a social network, but it hasn't been leveraged at all and there's not features being built out around it. But we see every day, like li- literally lives being changed, right? By Twitter. Yep. yep. Um, I mean, people have built, I mean, we have friends, right? Who have literally become incredibly wealthy 100% because of their Twitter network.
1: Nick Huber's made a half a million dollars this year. I've watched him come from 500 followers to making a half a million dollars
0: this year purely through Twitter. Yeah, same, I, I remember like, um, it, oh, not even that long ago, actually, like I, I text or I, I DM'd Nick and I was like, oh, dude, congratulations, you've got 2,000 followers. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that
0: was like a big deal, you know.
1: You could take a picture of that and sell it as an NFT now. That's how
0: fast the world's going. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. that That's a whole other thing, man. I And I won't profess to understand that one either.
1: So you get to see, obviously, like you're, you're in this, you're in the trenches. And, and a lot of our conversations offline have been around kind of this younger generation and what they're expecting. Can you talk a little deeper on like, what do 25 to 30 or twenty five to 50 year old people like wish they had in banking if you as you've done these surveys and gotten feedback like what are people what are some of the obvious things that people want to see change
0: yeah well I think for the most part and this applies you know I've been in consumer marketing for a long time and in general people aren't thinking about this stuff to the depth that we are <laughs> and and uh, they just want to live their lives but but they don't want to get pissed off at every turn like it's all those like little nag nagging use cases that, you know, I talked about the wires or, or extracting, you know, um, home equity, like help me live my life better. Don't optimize the business around profit for the bank, optimize the business around. And you want to talk about customer loyalty. If you can do that, like you've probably stumbled into You've done a lot of work with banks. Obviously you've probably stumbled into a couple guys over the years who you're like, I'm going to work with these guys forever because they get it. Right. And, and It doesn't even take much, but now imagine you know a bank that really builds, um, like helps you you know eliminate your credit cards and you're you're at three percent instead of twenty percent all of a sudden, and it's really easy to move money around. And they're looking for opportunities for you to optimize your financial life. Like that's that's what banking should be, and it's it's quite analogous actually to to healthcare, which is the other massive industry that's incredibly broken. It's like I got sick recently and was had the unfortunate experience of like having to deal with the medical system, which is something I don't do very often. And you're like at every, it's like the target rich environment at every turn shit is broken. And so, so that's, that's kind of it in a nutshell is, and it's going to happen. It's just, it's, it's happening slowly. You know, it takes a catalyst. Like some company will come out of nowhere, you know, maybe it'll even be ours. I don't know. And 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 do something. and Everybody's going to be like, wow. Well, yes, of course, that's it's almost like learned helplessness in a way where like we accept the way banking works. Like you play the game every day. Right. In, in your business transactions, you know how banks work and you just deal with it and you don't expect much more out of them because, you know, that's like all of your expectations or, or, or demands will go unmet. <laughs> so, well, and, so and
1: when you think about like even getting into a bank and a career in banking, you kind of start as like a risk analyst, like you enter the bank from the wrong side to ever make an impact. Like you think about the job as being, how do I make less risky loans or how do I just take people's deposits? But nobody's thinking about going into banking from how do I change the customer experience that just like hasn't been a thing. And one of the things that you and I have talked for hours offline, actually have an outline I have not sent you that I'm gonna send you after this from our last chat a couple months ago. The thing I think about all the time, we have 600 plus investors now. I have people that have made a lot of money and have a lot of net worth. And there's one thing that has become abundantly clear to me. Just because you know how to make money does not mean you know how to manage money. And if we go back to the Coinbase thing today, there's a lot of people today that made 10 50 100 billion dollars and they're a fucking software engineer. They have no clue what they're going to do with that 50 million in cash. And you're either going to go pay some dude that's been doing it the same way forever to manage it for you. And like everything you've talked about what comes to mind is like this virtual CFO that like lives inside your bank account and helps you make decisions for your life that you can trust. And I've just learned over and over is like, just cause you have money gives you zero credentials that you know how to manage it.
0: Yeah. And I'll, I'll say like, I'll raise my hand and say guilty. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm that way. I've done a pretty too, good job of, ways. Of, of making money. I'm not really a good money manager myself. I just, I, I've done okay by keeping things super simple. Yeah. Um. But, but the wealth management, Chris is like a whole other, like that's a, that's a segment within banking. We could spend another hour on because It's also broken. I mean, um, you you know, I think you introduced me to Adam and we've talked about that uh, at length too. Like we all have an itch to fix this because that's a, I have a belief, like when I do startup investing, I like to invest in founders who have felt the pain of the problem they're solving and therefore have a unique understanding of it. And that's like for us, like our little circle that is one that we feel the pain of every single day. And we can envision this. We all have like envision a slightly different solution, but huge opportunity there. And like, it, it makes me want to like abandon everything and like devote my life to it for the next you know two years. Yeah. But you know, there's like 50 things just like that. <laughs> I, I have on my iPhone, I have like a list of like, I call it startup ideas and I keep it prioritized. And like, that's somewhere in there. I don't know where it is, uh, but it's like, gosh, you know, target rich environment. (laughs) I
1: I wish there was like a social, uh, like a social network or I feel like there's a lot of value for a network where people that that deal with the certain problems, like having money. I'm not saying it's, these are not like problems. Let me like rephrase it. But when you have money and you're placing it in private things and private investments and stock market, and I got a mortgage and I got life insurance, you have all these things. Like our talks have been around, you either have so much money that you can hire a staff to like do it all for you. And you have like a quote unquote family office or you don't. And there's like maybe a community where you could talk to others. Hey, how are you getting your insurance? Like what makes sense? Like there is no place for all these people to gather. And I think where a lot of our interesting conversations have come is like, why can't a really cool bank be a place where not only you bank and get great products, but maybe you meet some of the other customers along the way and find out, best practices. Cause that's what family offices do. Not only within their family office, but they know all the family offices in town. They all share ideas and secrets and that's why they all stay rich.
0: Well, you just gave me chills because, um, I would just say, stay tuned. That's, you know, I can tell you that's like, that's right at the intersection. of In fact, I'm going to send you a document after we, a super secret document after we finish this. <laughs> I'm going to send you, you a document at. too. I have an outline. You know, I've you. talked to, um, yeah, I mean, it's like, it's like, um, even what, even if you do have like a family office or a wealth manager, which I I've never met a great wealth manager personally, so I don't use one, but like, they're kind of living in the past. Like we okay. know being on Twitter, like we see all these incredibly brilliant strategies for tax. They're like smart money moves. And I'm like, holy cow, that's brilliant. Um, but my CPA, my wealth advisor, like they're not on top of this shit. And um, so like that community of like the the best in their field, like I think of like, you know, Mitchell, right? You know, for, for, you know, tax strategies, like he, he's on the cutting edge. He's a small business, but like he's in this community, he's on the cutting edge. And like, that's who I want to get my advice from. Like someone who's like passionate about it and living it, not some guy Who's just applying like a a forty-year-old formula for wealth management, and so I mean, and can you automate that? Like you know, like like we said, it's really easy to get excited about this as like a startup opportunity.
1: I think you and I have tried starting this company like five times offline. (laughs) One time in a Twitter
0: thread. I think we had some co-founders join us, and uh, we did. I think you could have actually raised money probably through (laughs) that Twitter thread. The, but it's like money's not even the gating factor at this point, right? It's yep. like who's gonna who's gonna do this? <laughs> all
1: right, let's just talk for a, just a second. You had made a comment um, on some of the show notes. You said a wild deal experience with SoftBank. I can't let this podcast go away without hearing a wild uh, deal experience from the mega fund, SoftBank.
0: Okay. Um, all right. So this is going to take about eight to ten minutes, but uh, hopefully it'll be be. I'll, I'll try to move quickly. So. Before I get into that, I just want to set the context that um a long time ago, one of my mentors um, said something that really impacted my life, which is that the only things that really matter in life are experiences and relationships. And so I took that to heart. And really, it's a lens that I recommend using for everything in life. Like if your primary goal in life is to do cool do cool shit and have deep relationships with people that matter, everything else kind of takes care of itself. Like to me, um, that's way more powerful than having the primary goal of like making money or achieving this or that. Because paradoxically, if you do cool shit, you're probably gonna make money. Um, and, and by the way, the experiences and relationships are the only thing you can carry with you through life anyway. And so um, when, when I talk about this SoftBank deal, I only mentioned it to you because it's a great, like I look, I've made a lot of my career choices based on like, what will create the best experiences and relationships for me? And that's worked very well for me. And this is an example of like a crazy ass. It could have come out of an episode of billions type uh, experience. So uh, that's the context. And and I'm going to, I'm going to change a few things to protect the innocent here. Uh, But I was working with a company years ago um, that was, was on the block, right? It was, we were, we were selling the company, talking to a bunch of the top tier um, private equity guys and SoftBank got involved, you know, so we had uh, a bunch of, um, preliminary meetings with, you know, these wicked smart guys, you know, the vision fund and, you know, it was, you know, really a big deal. And they took an interest in, in the sector we were playing in. And, you know, this was a, like a multi-billion dollar deal. Ultimately it got to the point where Masa is the decision maker and you, you got to meet with Masa to get the deal done. And he's I mean, obviously, you know, for a variety of reasons, incredibly hard to get time with. And so, you know, the, the deal kind of goes on, goes on, goes on. I get a call from our CEO at like 10 p.m. one night. I'm, I'm actually, I was out running. I normally don't run that late, but I remember that night I happened to be on a run. And so I answered my phone because it's the CEO. And uh, <laughs> he says, hey, I need you to be at DFW private terminal tomorrow morning at 7 a.m. We're going to, to meet with Masa at his house. And so I'm like, wow, that's, that already sounds cool. So, And by the way, my, the CEO and our CFO were in New York and they were gonna fly directly from New York to San Francisco. And so, you know, I show up at DFW private terminal in the morning, I'm on a 10 seater jet by myself with the stewardess, which for me, that was kind of a, like, I'm still, you know, kind of, uh, I'm still that little boy that grew up in central Texas. And to me, to me I was like sending selfies from the plane and stuff, <laughs> uh, cause to like have a whole plane to yourself. That was pretty cool. So we land in, um, in San Francisco and it was like crazy shit. Like we had like a cavalcade of, of escalades to, to whisk us away. We end up going up to, to Massa's house, which I'd looked it up on the plane it was the largest purchase price ever for a private residence, like 150 million dollars, and it's everything. You might, it was in the hills of uh, of um, oh gosh, uh, like like Woodside area, and it's everything you might imagine it to be, like over the top. And like you, you walk in the front door, and you have to put on like these Burberry slippers that they give you, and and uh, so we have the meeting in in the dining room, which is like you know a dining room like you've never seen, like gold inlay everywhere, statues like babies with wings and gold and stuff and and uh, like there's a screen wings. set up for yeah <laughs> there's a there's a screen set up and and already in there Moss is not in there but his lieutenants are and like you know at a fund like that like the 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 second layer of management is folks like oh I'm the former CEO of Deutsche Bank. Like that's that's the executive team. And so like it's a it's a murderers row of like smart, you know, hard piping banking, you know, investment banking guys. And so there's like the, the three of us in there, we're going to give the pitch. And normally when we did these pitches, I would be like the lead off man. Cause I'd put together the deck and like, I'm, um, you know, usually like do the intros and then hand it over to our CEO. And originally our CEO said, I'll do this one. I'll kick off this one. We get in this meeting, we're standing there and, and our CEO turns to me and says, uh, on second thought, you, you kick this off. So like it's like the ultimate like high pressure situation like everybody's quiet and Maso walks in and everybody's very deferential to him. It's like a very serious meeting like there's nothing fucking casual about it. And so you know we go through our pitch and like normally you've been in a lot of these like normally it's like fairly interactive like when you're pitching a VC or or a hedge fund. This one's like dead silent like you go through the whole pitch with like without one word being uttered. And you know we finish and. Masa just sits there kind of contemplative. And he, he asked like two really simple questions. And then, you know, we were told it's time for you to go. And so like that experience, like to me, you know, beyond like doing the deal or making great money or whatever, like to have those, that's what, like when you're, when I was, you know, in college and I'd read these business books, that's the shit you read about. And like, I've had a couple or a handful maybe of those, those crazy experiences. And that's, that's honestly like that's the stuff you take with you. And we actually did not end up doing we did a deal with another uh big private equity firm but did not do the deal with SoftBank and you know what ensued after, shortly thereafter, you know, it was in the headlines, right? It's kind of it kind of became crazy town for for them. But you know that and that's like when so when I talk about when I tell young people like, you know, focus on using relationships and experiences as a lens, um that's what I'm talking about. Like Put yourself in a situation where you're doing like big time shit and you're going to learn and the experiences you'll get from that will just parlay into better and better stuff.
1: That's that's one of the best stories that's ever been told on the podcast. I have a, <laughs> I have a question for you then. Okay. Adam Newman, who ran WeWork, was like, he, they just came out with this documentary. I mean, I, I watched this guy and I'm like, how did this guy raise... $10 billion, how he was. And now I just picture the environment that you went in, which is like the total opposite of WeWork. Like, h- how do you think Masa treated him like the same way every meeting? Or do you think he had this whole other personality that you never got to meet that day?
0: I think it's the latter. Yeah, there, there had to be there because I've heard stories about Masa and he's like super smart and totally totally gets it. That said, though, I will tell you like in the experiences category, I've had, I've interacted with an unusual number of billionaires in my life, uh, through, through business. And, you know, like it, 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 sounds cliche to say it, but they're like the most, they're just like you or I, they're like, they're no smarter than you, no smarter than me. Um, they've done, they've made some really good moves. They're really smart, but they're like not infallible. Right. And so they've got their own issues. And so, you know, I guess like that, I always try to remind myself of that one, by the way, when I'm going into like a big presentation is like, you know, I can go toe to toe with these guys. Like I know what I'm talking about and that, that really helps to, to kind of just remind yourself, like you put these guys up on a pedestal, but you know, I've had some of them tell me like, Hey Kevin, what are you doing to like, you, you seem like you're so happy. Like I'm fucking miserable. I've got a private jet and I'm miserable. <laughs> And, and so like that, you know, when you've, when you've had that happen, it, it's a reminder that like, we all have, like, we all bring something to the table. Yeah. And there you are just on somebody's private jet, taking selfies, having the best time of your life. <laughs> I know, dude. I think like, that's a lot of it. Like never losing that childhood fascination with, with the world. Like to me, that's still like, that's the cool shit, man. Like I want to, I want to tell my friends about it.
1: I have a really good friend that, uh, he always jokes. He plays in member guests all over the country and he calls himself America's guest. That's his goal in life (laughs) is to be America's guest. And he's the happiest guy I've ever met. It's hilarious. That's a good life.
0: Um, If you can get it.
1: I know. All right. Let's, let's do some personal ones and we'll bring, we'll bring it home. Um, cool. Maybe you can get some rock climbing in today. Still, if I, if I can finish up quick, (laughs) I already done it by the way. You did.
0: Yeah. This morning.
1: (laughs) All right, what's one thing that you think a lot or believe in that a lot of the people around you just don't believe?
0: Um, I would say that I'm a big believer that you can manifest things through sheer power of will. Uh, I would just say, and, and there's probably a lot more to it. It's not just a matter of like believing something and it happens, but it probably informs the way you behave which has an impact. But I think a lot of people tend to assume that like, we don't have control over much of our lives. And I just, I call bullshit on that. Like, I think we have way more control over our lives. And, and, and if you like are super determined, um, to make something happen, then, um, even like at a sort of a subconscious level, you'll tend to do the things and, you know, we we talk a lot on Twitter about like baby steps and compounding. Right. And I think that's what a lot of it ends up being. It's like, if you feel super strongly and want something really badly, you're probably going to do the things that will will compound over time and you're going to get it. I've just been amazed over and over my, my life, not just even in business, like how, like if you really set your mind to something, you know, it sounds cliche, but like you can really, you have a lot of control over making that happen, whatever that whatever that may be and i think a lot of people sort of sit, don't don't believe that because we like to believe that it's external factors that are keeping us from achieving our goals when it's almost always the the enemy is within i love it
1: we share something in common that is uh, i think precious to both of us we're both the father of two daughters what is your best advice
0: to all the girl dads out there listening to this oh wow well, being a girl dad, as you know, is, is incredible. I mean, I wouldn't know what it's like to be a boy dad because I don't have any boys. Uh, but I grew up with sisters and I live in a house now with, um, with uh, four other, four, four women because we have my, my wife, my two daughters, and we have a medical school school student who's living with us right now. Um, yeah. And, and so it's a, it's a um, feminine dominated environment for sure. But I mean, I, I think, you know, and I, I think this will resonate with you, Chris is like, you are their first love, someone told me that one time, and I, I try to be very um, deliberate and conscious that I'm modeling for them what they should seek out in a in a life partner. That doesn't always mean giving them what they want, by the way so so just being really deliberate about that I think is i, I mean I am uh, LeBron James has this incredible quote that says, "Greatness is consistency over time you know it doesn't mean that you're great every day, but you're consistent and I try to be incredibly consistent with my, with my girls and that's been my strategy. I love that, man. Thank you for sharing.
1: All right. One more, and then we'll, we'll bring it home. Um, is there a book or something that you've read that's had a impact on you,
0: man? Um, I don't do as nearly as much reading as I used to because Twitter, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but, uh, my, my attention span maybe has gone down, but you know, um, I think you and I are both men of faith. And I read a book recently that really challenged my, or actually didn't so much challenge my thing. He's like affirmed a lot of what the feelings I had that I felt bad about. And it's a book by a comedian, actually. So there's this guy, Pete Holmes. Um, He actually had a a show on HBO for a while. He wrote this book called Comedy, Sex, God. So three words, comedy, sex, God. Basically, he grew up uh, in the South in a fundamentalist sort of religious household, like, like I sort of did, like a lot of, a lot of us in the South. And he was struggling with a lot of like the sort of literal interpretation of Christianity that he saw around him. And he talks about his whole journey of like coming through comedy and then discovering psychedelics. And it's a wild journey, but basically he, he comes full circle at the end and with a, with a broader interpretation of what faith means to him, what God is and, and, um, that really resonated with me because it, it, it caused me to go out and really, um, uh, revisit a lot of the things that I was struggling with and, and solidify my, my position. So, you know, to any, I would say for anybody who, you know, you don't even have to be a Christian, but who, if you're struggling with issues of faith, it's just a very good, open discussion. There's no sacred cows in this book. Um, and so comedy sex, God, that's, a, that was a good one.
1: I'm gonna get it on my list. I do so many of these episodes, my list is like a hundred books deep now. So I'm gonna have to bump this one to the top. How can people uh, find you on Twitter? Or if if somebody wants to engage and, and has something cool
0: to tell you, how how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, Twitter man. Like I'm at Camp Four, and um, I'm kind of I've, I've been debating whether I need to change my Twitter handle. Like I've I've been on Twitter, I think like I don't know, like 15 years most of it was dormant. And I thought, you know, camp four is the climbers campground in Yosemite national park. And I thought, what a cool, I got camp four, that's a cool handle, but actually like, you know, nobody knows my real name. (laughs) And so uh, I'm thinking about changing it, but anyway, that's me at camp four on Twitter. Um, I, I answer all DMS, even though like sometimes when I have a occasional post that, that goes a little bit viral, you know how it goes, like you get, a. but I, I actually, it's really important to me until it, until I just can't do it anymore. I take the time to answer um, all DMs because like, like you said, you get, you know, you get a ton of fulfillment out of doing this. And by the way, you do a great job at it. Um, but, but I get a lot of fulfillment out of like, you know, having like just my helping someone in some small way. Yep. Um, so, yeah.
1: Awesome. All right, Kevin, thank you so much uh, for today. This was, this was better than I expected.
0: Awesome. Let's, uh, and let's hang out like uh, with, without being broadcast uh, sometime.
1: Hey, everyone. It's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, or write a quick review. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and CEO of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Ford Podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Ford Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.